On the line with us today, we have uh, delighted to have Nisha Max Sweeney, the prize-winning historian. New book is The West, A New History in 14 Lives. Anisha, the first question is, how did you arrive at the 14 individuals that you uh, spotlight in your book? Oh, Steve, this was a really difficult decision or set of decisions to make. I wanted to capture, obviously, individuals from the whole span of Western history. So I wanted to space them out over time. But I also wanted to capture a range of different um, historical personalities as well, not just kings and queens and great generals and things like that, but I wanted to get more everyday people, people who who came from different sides of society, who captured a different kind of um, life experience. Um, I also wanted to capture some women, some, some women and men, so a range of different gendered voices. And I also wanted to um, look at people from different places geographically as well. So to the idea of trying to get a range of different figures was absolutely vital to this. So I, I hope I've more or less caught, um, caught got that right. And we probably won't get to uh, identifying all of them. People need to, to check that out themselves. But uh, I'll just throw out a few here because uh, they're names that uh, we, we've heard, but perhaps some, maybe in passing or we know of them, but we don't really know much about them. But Herodotus, the Greek historian, um, what 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 uh, intrigued you about uh, about him? Well, Herodotus, I've I've loved Herodotus's writing for a long time. I mean, as a historian, you you look back and people sometimes call him the father of history. He's you know so he is a shining example of what we are kind of supposed to be. Um, but he was interesting because I I really felt he had been very largely misunderstood. Um, He writes a story about the wars of Greece against Persia, and it's so often understood as a narrative about a clash of civilizations, East versus West, Europe versus Asia, Greece versus Persia. Um, And actually, the more I read into the detail of Herodotus and what he was actually saying, it seems like he kind of undermines this model. And actually, he's much more interested in the things that bring people together, the cultural contacts, the diplomacy, the interactions between peoples. Um, He's much more interested in that than in the conflicts that push people apart. Um, And I think this misunderstanding of Herodotus was was key to why I thought we really had to, why I had to include him, why in fact he's the, the beginning of the book, where the book starts. Sure. And now there's another uh, individual, and I and I, I don't have the full name. I, I don't know that I could pronounce it if I did. But Al Kindi, the uh, from Baghdad, the ninth century Baghdad, uh, sounds like a fascinating person. Did so many different things. But give us a little bit of a, sort of a capsule on 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 him. Yeah, so Al Kindi was actually pretty new to me. I didn't know much about him before I started the research for this book. And the more I found out, the more I wanted to know. He seems to have been um, a, a real kind of typical scholar. You know, he loved his books, didn't really get on with actual people, but he just loved <laughs> to study. But he wrote a little bit like me sometimes. But he wrote um, incredible stuff. He just kind of um, so much scientific analysis, philosophy, theology. He wrote uh, treaties on lenses, and then how to get stains out of dirty clothes. He wrote about everything. You name, you know, you name it. He wrote it. Um, but one of the things that he did write was about how knowledge and learning is not constrained by. Um, 
kind of cultural groups or by civilizations, that knowledge and learning belongs to all of humanity. And um, he firmly believed that you should um, embrace science and knowledge and understanding wherever it came from, even if it was from foreign peoples. Um, and I think that kind of spirit of open inquiry was, it's, so, it's still refreshing to read it now. Um, and it was wonderful to read it in, in ninth century Baghdad, which did seem to be an incredible center for open-minded uh, scientific inquiry in the medieval world. And that's and that's just one of the little windows. We're, t- we're talking with Nisha Max Sweeney, the historian who wrote the book The West, and spotlighting these different eras, different cultures. Now, wh- I guess one of the themes here, and Nisha, you tell me, or, uh, tell our audience, um, is that perhaps, I don't say perhaps, we've become uh, sort of accustomed to the idea that the West had this sort of this flow of history from the Greek-Roman era uh, right through to the West. And I think, well, how do you put it? It's it's really not that simple, right? In other words, we we we, it's a it's a worldwide thing. Or you tell us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. so it is more complicated. I think we, especially when you're as kids, we learn this story that it's Greece and Rome. Then there's a medieval period, the Renaissance, and then we have kind of Atlantic modernity, um, and and you know industrial revolution, and it's very kind of you know, there's one direction, there's one flow. But actually, the more you dig into Western history, um, the more I found at least, it's it's less like a thread, a kind of a golden thread through the centuries. And it's more like a tapestry. And there are threads and weaves going in all kinds of directions. There are cultural influences coming from all across the globe and coming together to make the tapestry that is Western history. Um, So I think for me, it's also shifting mentally, not thinking of Western history as as being a single linear thread, but thinking of something of it as something much more um, multidimensional and much more colorful and and much richer um, than than I had thought about before. If uh, school children are are studying world history, and I assume they they still do, uh, you know, are there are there some misconceptions out there that you feel maybe are being imparted that, uh, you know, you and others are, are, are trying work to, to dispel? Yeah, I think one of the, the key ones is that the, the way that we divide the world now, either the West and the rest, or even just the idea of the continents of Europe, Asia and Africa, um, the Americas, North and South, these didn't always exist. These were at some stage, these divisions between peoples and between places were were invented. Um, I'm not saying the the land masses didn't exist. Um, what I'm saying is that the, the the idea of borders between them wasn't always how we think of them now. And it's as you look back through history, you just see how the borders were chopped up in totally different ways. So what was Europe and what was not Europe? really changes from century to century Um, and you know the heartlands of what we think of as as kind of Europe now were not considered European at all in the middle middle ages Um, and again um, if we look back into antiquity the whole idea of Europe as Herodotus says he thinks it's a crazy idea it doesn't make any sense because you can't you can't divide it from Asia there's no proper way to divide Europe from Asia so the kind of artificial nature of the way we chop up humanity, the way we chop up the world, the way we classify the world, 
Um, that is artificial and that is human made. And I think that is something really important for us all to appreciate fully. Nisha, is it, and I apologize because I'm, I'm, I jotted this note down, but I, now I can't remember from whence it came. But the country, Turkey, uh, their approach to history, is that something that um, you touched on or, or you got into? Or well, I, I'm not sure why I have that here, but, uh, you know, because I thought we don't know much about Turkey in this country. I mean, at least uh, most of us. Um, but it's it's a huge country. It's got a vast history. It sort of sits there in in the in between world. Uh, how would you what, what what's going on in Turkey in your mind? Well, yeah, Turkey is actually a country that's very dear to my heart. I spent quite a lot of time working there on, on archaeological sites, and it does have this heritage, which is both European and Asian. Um, and it kind of has uncomfortably or, or, or comfortably or uncomfortably sometimes sat between the the, two, the continents. I mm. mean, so it's got this history which um, has elements of the ancient Greek world. It's got elements of kind of ancient Mesopotamia. It seems to be a place where through the centuries, different cultures have come and have interacted and connected. And this has produced an incredibly um, uh, kind of vibrant cultural mix very often. Um, uh, Turkey is is the place where you know what we think of as uh, especially the beginnings of Western literature actually start um, with the poems of Homer and the histories of Herodotus. Those are actually written by um, these are both guys who who lived and worked in in Turkey in what is modern day Turkey. Now, what's interesting is that in I mean I talk about um, Turkey or as it was the Ottoman Empire during the early modern period. Um, in the 16th and 17th centuries. And in that period, again, it was at the heart of an empire which spanned um, Africa and Asia and Europe. Um, so it was very much caught between the continents. And the, the the sultans of the Ottoman Empire were very deliberately positioning themselves as transcontinental. Um, and I think this is um, a very interesting idea for us now when we really tend to, to see the world in terms of blocks and we see Europe is quite different from Europe, um, from Asia and Africa, but it certainly wasn't the case in the 16th century. Um, more recently, more recently though, Steve, in, um, in the 20th and 21st century, um, the modern nation of Turkey has tried to grapple with this very complex and diverse history and it's done it in different ways. Um, it's done it by thinking about the, the deep history of the land, it's also done it in thinking about the migrant populations that have come in um, from, from different corners of the world and the Turks themselves and uh, claim to have come from Central Asia. So um, it's the kind of the dualism of the of the, the kind of the longevity of the landscape and the arrival of different migrant populations. And that has been something which is a recurrent theme in Turkish history until the present day. I see another book there for you, uh, Nisha. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Definitely, yes. One of the things you mentioned, we were talking with Nisha Maxweeney, a historian who has written The West, and the the reference when we were talking about Al-Kindi, ninth, ninth century Baghdad, a, a city then of, of assumed or estimated million population, which we're talking about the ninth century. So out of curiosity, I, I looked up Baghdad today is a seven and a half million but then again, out of curiosity, Istanbul in Turkey has a population over 15 million. 
and I'm wondering how many folks here in the United States uh, understand the magnitude of some of these places that uh, that you know we hear about, but we don't really know. So it's 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 great that you you put a light on it. Um, one of the things we were talking with uh, Nisha about the individuals, the 14 lives that you spotlight. Phyllis Wheatley, 18th century African American mm-hmm. poet, uh, and this was interesting to me too because um, I did not know about this until I read it in your book, and you know, then I looked up and I saw that there was a, a monument for her. I think she shares it with two others in Boston, um, right there in Commonwealth Avenue, where I used to live, or you know, a block, a few blocks away. But then I thought, well, then I, I need to know more about this. Uh, how did you get on to, to Phyllis Wheatley, and, and what was your thinking there about uh, inserting her in this group? Well, I came. I first came across um, Phyllis Wheatley um, through her work as a classical scholar, because you know, work on the ancient Greek and Roman world is is what I do and my day job when I'm not writing books. And um, so she she was unexpectedly in her time and for somebody of her her life situation she was a, a poet but she was also um a classical scholar too she was very very well versed in the greek and roman classics and composed poetry in and especially a kind of a, a latinate manner so I, I came i i kind of learned about her from from that kind of professional side but then when i started to I didn't realize what her personal situation was until I started to dig into it. And then I realized that she had um, been transported from West Africa at the age of about eight and then arrived in um, Boston and lived through the revolutionary period. And she was such a rich character and and what she'd accomplished in um, a relatively short life was absolutely incredible. Um, The fame that she had as a kind of a literary sensation, um, both in America and in England, was um, something I wasn't ready for. So it was it was very very eye opening for me to to learn about Phyllis Wheatley. And and you know one can only imagine, you know, here she is a, a slave who uh, was given her freedom, uh, but thankfully she she I guess landed in the right household. But uh, the accomplishments that she did, and it was a relatively short life. I think she died in her early thirties. If I'm yeah, not mistaken, yeah. so uh, it was just remarkable. These are just examples of some of the people that you pick up. Now let's come rushing to the present. Um, <laughs> okay. Carrie, Carrie Lamb. Uh, what now? That, give give us a quick uh, uh, sort of bio on that. Uh, who, who is that for somebody listening in? Would think who's Carrie Lamb? Yeah, well, Carrie Lamb was until very very recently the chief executive of. Hong Kong, the special protectorate of Hong Kong, um, which is obviously part of the People's Republic of China now. And then Carrie is a really interesting character because she lived her life between um, China and Britain. And of course, she she oversaw Hong Kong through the, the kind of the helm of Hong Kong um, at, in a period of great unrest where there was a lot of um, there were a lot of um, uh, demonstrations and people who were calling for greater democracy in Hong Kong. Um, But she was, as the chief executive, she also had to do the bidding of the Beijing government who who did not want these protesters to make their voice heard. And so she found herself in in a very awkward position between a population which was calling for more Western style democracy, more Western style freedom, for greater links with the West, but also an administration in Beijing, which was seeking to 
uh, put a lid on all of that. Mm-hmm. And Carrie Lam, her own personal life, I mean, she was a British citizen uh, but until she took up um, public office. Her own personal life was very much between between worlds, between East and West. And as a politician earlier in her career, she talked very proudly about Hong Kong being a city that brought in the best of both East and West, that celebrated the joining of East and West. But it's just incredible that over the course of her professional career, that this became less and less possible. And I think it tells us a bit about the the, the political situation that we find ourselves in, that this the idea of bringing East and West together is is no longer as easy as it was. And, it, you know, it, it, it became more a question of clash um, cultural clash rather than a question of cultural integration. Um, and I think that kind of tells us about where we are today and some of the challenges that that we face at the moment. Uh, good. Yeah. And that's certainly right to the to the very second. Now, what is do we know? What is Carrie doing now? I, your guess is as good as mine, Steve. So she she stepped down um, from office last year. Um, there is a new chief executive at the helm. I imagine she's probably having um, a, a bit of a rest and keeping a low profile for a while. <laughs> probably well advised. Uh, <laughs> well, Nisha Maxweeney, we thank you so much. Um, the book is, again, uh, The West, A New History, 14 Lives. Um, it's just a fascinating study. And you know, it just makes the point again, and I'm sure if there are any uh, young people listening to this, um, they're cringing as I as I speak. But it, it it makes history come alive, and I know people always say that. Um, you know, oh yeah, 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 right. But um, it's true. I mean, once you get into it and and see, oh, you know, Baghdad is, is was this, or or the the Ottoman Empire, the various things you cover here. Um, it, it gives life to it, which, you know, r- rather than just dates and wars and that sort of thing that you, sa- you said at the onset was, was not your um, <laughs> plan of attack. So <laughs> very good. Well, thank you so much, Anisha. Uh, best of luck thank to you. Thank you, Steve. It's been wonderful to, to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Okay. Thank you. Bye.